0: Thanks for joining us today for the Post-Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season, new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today it's my pleasure to welcome Mark Bellowed to join us. Hi, Mark.
1: Hello. How are you, Jill?
0: I'm doing well. What's going on in the lovely city of Detroit today?
1: Oh, it's a beautiful day in Michigan. Uh, just a gorgeous uh, late summer, early fall day.
0: Now, here's something I never knew about Michigan until I ended up with some relatives from there. I never knew there was such a thing as a Uper.
1: A youper. Yeah. A youper is a person who lives in the upper peninsula.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they have their own songs, they got their own language, they got their own everything up there. Uh, so,
1: so, sort of for the for those of you who aren't are not familiar with Michigan, Michigan is, is made up of two peninsulas, the upper and the lower, and, and a youper is a person who lives in the upper peninsula. Yep. That's about um close to five hours north of Detroit. It's a it's it's quite a hike.
0: Okay. Very good.
1: It's sort of like going from uh, from uh, Miami to Tallahassee in in, uh, <laughs> in Florida.
0: Yep. Well, it's a hike. Well, I live in Montana, so it's like nine hours across the state. So,
1: <laughs> every everything's a hike in Montana.
0: Everything is a hike. You go two hours; that's a day trip.
1: So yeah, that's a spread. That's a spread out uh, uh, state.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, um I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about uh kind of your first career and what led you to want to become a lawyer.
1: What led me to become a lawyer was that I would not be my mother's dream, which is my son the doctor. Ah, uh, science science and math did not agree with me. And and you're required to have especially chemistry and and biology. It, Greek to me so uh, the English language, English literature, social studies, history, those are the courses I loved and that's what led me to become a lawyer. That and, and my mother's and fathers for that matter, uh, dream that I become a professional.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so so the next the next logical step when you when you enjoy the classes I just mentioned, is lawyer, yeah, and and I I've, I've been blessed. Uh, I was I was a successful lawyer. I enjoyed practicing law for the time I did it. It's a high stress kind of profession.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I wouldn't say I suffered burnout per se, but I I got a bit exhausted, tired. Um, yeah, I wanted to do something else, so I uh left the law and I went into the field of lawsuit financing oh, where you where you invest money in in legal cases and I did that for 20 years after practicing law for 25. Uh, and I, it was only after I retired from that and left the business to my daughter I still consult and help her out but primarily she runs, my business. Mm-hmm. And that's when I turned to writing.
0: So what kind of law did you practice?
1: Personal injury, uh, tort law. Okay. A- auto accidents, premises cases, malpractice cases. Okay. A, a little bit of, um, uh, product liability, police brutality, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, some some discrimination, but not much. That's a, uh, Fields, when I started, were something a personal injury lawyer did. Right. Later in life, uh, they became very specialized fields. And you can't dabble in medical malpractice. You can't dabble in employment or, or sexual discrimination. Okay. You have to do those things. In, in my early days, you could, you could quote, dabble in them. They could be part of your overall specialty. These days, you, you have to specialize in those areas.
0: So that has to be kind of your whole portfolio.
1: I, I would say so. If, if, if you're a discrimination lawyer, you can handle sexual harassment. You can handle discrimination. You can handle employment cases or other types of discrimination cases. But you're a discrimination lawyer. Okay. that's my that's my view. Uh, some people might feel differently, but that's my view. Same thing with malpractice. If you're going to handle malpractice cases, they're too complicated, too complex, too hard, uh, too time consuming for you to do the other things that a personal injury lawyer does.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. What do you think was the most rewarding part of that of your career?
1: Well, it was definitely handling uh, the case. The real case that led to my writing, Betrayal of Faith, my first book, uh, bringing the church to justice in a case where two boys were molested by a priest and the church was covering up the incident, at least their involvement in the incident. Uh, And it was rewarding to essentially bring uh, them, not, not, not the priest, the priest was acknowledged to have been a predator. Um, and he went to jail. Uh, But a a priest, as you probably know, vows an oath of poverty. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get uh, financial compensation for a client, you need what we call a deep pocket defendant. And in this case, the deep pocket defendant was the church. The church denied knowing about the priest, the incident, and the priest's prior propensities to commit these kinds of assaults. Mm.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: That was not true. That was a lie. And my job and my partner's job was to prove the lie. And uh, it took three years, but we did.
0: You know these kinds of cases and the way that they're handled are deeply impactful to people's faith and to their trust in the church. And um, we've seen case after case go go to trial and go to publicity on this. How do you think people um, should view the church in light of uh, so many cover-ups and scandals?
1: Negatively, I I, I think we can we can all Uh, I'll tell you a little story, uh, a side story of of, of handling the case. My partner and I are Jewish, and the church made it clear that they thought we were just two Jewish lawyers trying to stick it to the Catholic church. Mm. There there was no acknowledgement that they were the predators, that they were the criminals, that they were the bad guys. We were the bad guys for pointing it out to them. Mm. Um, Why do I bring that up? because I don't think this is a religious issue. I think that uh, a predator can exist in any business or religion or institution. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The difference between the Catholic Church and almost every other organization, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit because I, I, I don't think organizations as a whole like to admit these things, but the church is the king of that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, The difference is that they completely covered up the crimes of this predator prior to and subsequent to the case I handled. They would transfer him from place to place and not tell the next community or the prior community who he was and what he did. Really? And that allowed him to do it again and again and again. And that has been the history of these kinds of cases throughout the scandal. Right. When we talk about the cases I handled, uh, I'm a 70-year-old man. I handled these cases in my early 30s. They're almost 40 years old. The movie Spotlight happened out of an incident that occurred in the early 2000s, late 90s. Mm. My case happened in the late 70s. Here we are in 2022, and they still haven't solved this issue, nor have they addressed it in a meaningful way. Wow, That's the difference. I just don't understand why a religious, caring, charitable institution would handle such events In that terrible way, Uh, it it blows my mind.
0: And in in the church, you expect, or there should be a reasonable expectation, that that is the most accountable, the most trustworthy, the most um, the most kind and caring and compassionate. Organization that you can find, right? That's the right. supposed to be the ethos of the church, as 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 Christ put it together. And when um, human hands get in the middle of that and make it something so distorted and deceptive, it is it is the one of the worst kinds of abuse that can happen.
1: No, no question. Uh, do the right thing. That's what you yeah. would expect, right? Of uh, a religious institution, at least okay. do the right thing. If somebody does something wrong, which we're human, we sometimes hire the wrong people for the wrong job. Right. We sometimes uh, turn turn to misguided ways. We sometimes commit criminal acts. But what you would expect from a religious institution, if something like that happens in your network, to dismiss the person. To get that person some help, perhaps to get that person incarcerated, mm-hmm. and to make sure that that never happens again. What the church has done, year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, is cover these these things up, defend the the uh, predatory clergy, victim shame, the victims, right, right, and and allow this issue to perpetuate itself year after year after year decade after decade after decade it's it's mind-blowing
0: it is it's just com- completely heinous as you began to um, work with this case did you already know at the outset that there were that there were previous incidences by this clergy member or did that kind of peel back layer by layer and you discover that as you went along
1: the answer is no I didn't no we didn't Uh, We hired a private investigator. We investigated prior incidents and came up empty. Hmm. There were prior incidents. They were well covered up by the church. A prior lawsuit was filed that we weren't aware of. And it was covered up by the court. The court. (laughs) Which was also mind-blowing to me. Now, when I say covered up by the court, There are a lot of cases that are settled with a non disclosure agreement. Uh, There are very few cases that are settled with a court seal on being able to discover the existence of the prior case. In this case, the judge sealed. The existence of the case, for as what a, per, I presume as a favor to the church. I, I, they are very well connected, as you probably know, both politically and uh, otherwise. Uh, and a lot of uh, judges were members of the church, and apparently they had a judge that was a uh, was willing to do that. The good news is that judge retired or died. And there was a successor. And the successor, while she didn't uh, unseal the file uh, immediately, uh, something happened that resulted in having the information become available to us. Uh, Candidly, it was a mistake by the other side. Mm. They they mentioned the name of the uh, children involved. Oh, inadvertently at a court proceeding. And what I did, uh, I don't think I'm going to mention the name here, but but what I did, it wasn't it wasn't an uncommon name, but it wasn't a terribly common name. It wasn't Smith or Jones or something like that. Uh, It was uncommon enough for me to research the prior placement, which is where I expected it to have happened in the city that he was in before the city he was in that uh, I, uh, for the case I handled. And I went through literally the yellow pages and a, and a book uh, that precedes the internet essentially called Bressers, if you're familiar with it, mm-hmm. Bressers gives you the names and addresses of anybody living in a particular community.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a, it's a large uh, 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 almost encyclopedia type text and I looked up the name in that city, it was Wyandotte, Michigan and found every person of that name living in that city and I knocked on doors one by one looking for anybody who was related to or aware of an incident that involved a person of that name who was molested by a priest mmm and lo and behold, I found a relative of the uh, people that were involved. The people were that were involved resolved the case and moved to Florida.
0: Hmm.
1: And I tracked them down in Florida uh, with some significant difficulty, persuaded them to testify. They were worried about the NDA they signed. Right. Right. NDA means non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. They thought that they would have to give up their settlement, which was tremendously small. Uh, I almost wanted to sue their lawyer. Uh, yeah. That's how bad a deal they got. And on top of it, signed an NDA. I could have gotten them the amount of money they got. I don't want to talk about money necessarily as, right. as being the, the primary motivator here. but but. The money they received, I could have gotten a client that money just for the NDA. Ah, forget, the, forget the molestation incident. That, that's all that was worth. It was it was terribly, it was a terribly small amount of money. Um but they they eventually agreed to testify in our case, and that blew the case wide open.
0: So what's the difference in, um, I mean, litigating one case of molestation versus when you can show a pattern of behavior? Um, Does it does it increase the um, does it increase the award that what
1: it does? What it does is increase the negligence culpability bad conduct bad behavior it's much much worse to continue to cover up crimes to continue to perpetuate um, this kind of deviancy yeah so so as a result of the greater crime that results in greater compensation yeah you get you get you get I, I'm not necessarily Michigan is not a punitive damage state you don't get punishment money. Mm -hmm. but a jury in their mind says we're going to punish this behavior Mm -hmm. if it's that bad. Yeah. And that's, and that's why, that's why awards get larger when behavior uh, happens in a pattern like that, where it happens over and over and over, or, or in the, in the um, Boston case that the movie spotlight is based on. Right. We had a lot of victims. For the same priest, or for several priests, and that's what made that scandal so large, and that's what made the payout so large. When yeah. when they happen in a um, in a group, the payouts tend to be larger.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll tell
1: you a quick little story. Uh, I had a case years ago where a, a person a balcony collapsed and it fell to the ground three stories. Mm. And a woman and a woman, unfortunately, became a paraplegic as a result of that. That's a huge case, right? Mm -hmm. Damage wise, that person is going to be disabled for the rest of her life and going to need full time care the rest of her life. At the same time, on the same porch, a gentleman was with her and he fell the same way she did and he broke his leg. A broken leg might have been worth 15 to 20 grand back then. But because he piggybacked on a a paraplegia case, he got a lot more money than fifteen to twenty grand. So it's it's kind of the same thing. That's probably a bad example.
0: Yeah. No. I. I, But the
1: larger the scandal, the more the value. Yeah. Just that simple.
0: So in your writing, did you intend to embark on a series of social justice or did it just kind of unfold that way? Because that's your passion is social justice. And so you can introduce some of your other books, but your books follow a pattern of that. So did you set out to do that or did it just unfold that way?
1: I did not. I I set out to write uh, when I was 30, 40 years old, a nonfiction account of the case I handled. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't want to let it rest. Uh, there were there were reporters and journalists who wrote a couple of good books. Uh, one was called uh, "Lead Us Not into Temptation." Mm-hmm. Jason, um, I can't think of his name. His first name was Jason. Anyway, they followed the story. There was a scandal similar to the Boston incident in uh, the New Orleans area in Louisiana. Um, and he was from Louisiana. Jason Berry, he was his name, B-E-R-R-Y. I'm getting old. I can't remember all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Jason wrote a, a, a non-fictional account of the, not only the New Orleans incident, but the uh, church's uh, essential denial, uh, cover up of incidents all over the country, and he came to Detroit and interviewed me, and, uh, and I actually am, a, am I appear in a in a couple of pages of the book, which was my first uh, uh, foray into a, into being in a book.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but
1: but. Uh, Sent me a signed copy. I have it here somewhere. Anyway, anyway, um, so I, I, I intended to write a Jason Berry style non fictional account of what it's like for a young lawyer to suddenly get a case like this and handle it uh, from beginning to end uh, for the purpose of helping, for lack of a better way to say it, other lawyers who, uh, get a case like this, mm-hmm. uh, be able to handle them.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, as it turned out before I ever slowed down enough to be able to sit down and write a book, a lot of cases followed mine, including the ones in, in Boston. uh, uh another quick little story for you. There's an attorney by the name of Jeff Anderson. And if you look up Jeff, You will find that he is the preeminent attorney handling these kinds of cases. Before Jeff Anderson became Jeff Anderson, came my case. Mm -hmm. And I get a phone call from a young lawyer in Minnesota by the name of Jeff Anderson. And he said, I'm just handling my first case in this area of the law. You handled a, a case in Michigan. Would you mind sharing? Your experiences and your materials with me, and I did. And he handled his first case using my discovery, my depositions, my interrogatories, mm-hmm. uh, my my research.
0: What a valuable um, asset for him! And
1: and he became the guru of uh, handling clergy malpractice or clergy abuse in. The Catholic Church, and I went back to my small little boutique practice. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know who did the right thing. He's a lot wealthier than I am, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I, I just it, it was it was an exhausting, hard, difficult um, burnout mm-hmm. type litigation. Yeah. Uh, and and I really didn't want to make a career out of that. Yeah. Uh, But I always promised myself to answer your question that I'd write this book about it. And eventually, as I slowed down, I I sat down and I started to write. And I said, you know, this would be much more interesting if it was fictional and I could embellish a bit. So I decided to make it a fictional account rather than a non-fictional account. But a fictional account based on actual experience. Mm -hmm. And Betrayal of Faith, my first novel, is based on the experience of handling that case back in the early 80s in Michigan. Now, your question was, did I set out to be a novelist or or a social justice novelist with eight to ten books? And the answer is no. I tended to write this one book. It was a bucket list item. And I thought I'd be a one and done author.
0: Huh.
1: And what happened to change that was the 2016 election. Mm. I uh, candidly, I've been I've done a lot of podcasts, and everybody who's listened to a podcast of mine knows I'm not a fan of our for, our former president.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I wasn't tr- really a Hillary Clinton fan either. I just think she would have made a much better president than Donald Trump. Um. But what I didn't like was the rhetoric in the campaign. I didn't like the idea that he was going to close the southern border, that he was going to ban all Muslims from the United States. And as a Jewish person, I said to myself, it could just as easily be Jewish people. Right. It could just as easily be Asian people. It could just be Asian people have had their experience with being incarcerated and, and encamped. In in America, uh, this is not the direction a free country goes. So I said to myself, self, this is before the election now. What would happen if we actually elected an anti-Muslim, anti-Hispanic, closed the border, bigoted president of the United States? Mm -hmm. And I sat down and in four months wrote a fictional account of what that would look like. Four months. That book was called Betrayal of Justice. When I released it, Trump got elected, and I got a whole lot of internet hate accusing me of doing a hit job on the president. My response then and now is, I wrote the book before he became president. My president is a fictional character. Right. If you see a similarity between your guy and my guy, that's on <laughs> him, not on me.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Once I wrote betrayal of justice and realized I could write a book not based on a personal experience, although you could argue that the 16 election was, per- was a personal experience <laughs> I took it personally. Um but it wasn't. It didn't happen to me personally right. like the like the uh Church Case did, I realized I could write pretty compelling novels about topics in the news, and that's what I started to do after after Betrayal of Justice, does and here I am eight books later.
0: Does it become easier to write the longer and more experienced you are at it, or um, is each one just got its own challenges um, based on the storyline?
1: Well, the, both are true.
0: It, okay. it becomes
1: e- it becomes easier to write as you become more experienced. Topics, compelling topics are hard to find, even though the news keeps providing us topics. They they tend they tend to be similar to each other. If I if I, I wrote a book about a school shooting, I hate to to concede that school shootings have become commonplace in America. But they seem to have become commonplace in America.
0: Yeah.
1: So I can't keep writing about this school shooting and that school shooting. I wrote about one school shooting. It was primarily based on the Parkland incident, which directly involved um, a nephew of mine. He wasn't in the high school. He was at the junior high or the middle school. I'm showing my age. We used to call them junior high school. Right. Uh, The middle school. Is right next door to Parkland High. Oh, okay. So when they were still looking for the shooter, they shut down both schools. So he was involved in a shutdown at his school and experienced the incident pretty personally.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That made it personal to me. So I I wrote about primarily the Parkland incident as my model, but I used incidents all the way back to Columbine Mm -hmm. or um inspiration for the novel that novel by the way is called betrayal High it's my uh fifth novel
0: okay um
1: I I wrote a a, a novel about uh the police shooting an innocent black man in in a traffic stop mm-hmm. that was based on the Falando Castile
0: mm-hmm.
1: case but also again uh, a, a compilation of several incidents similar to that Um, they keep happening. I can't keep writing uh, about each incident. Right. Uh, It's it's almost morbid. That would almost be worse than handling the cases. Right. Uh, But but they do provide me inspiration to write. Once I sit down to write uh, and research, it becomes relatively, I don't want to say easy, uh, because writing a novel is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would write a novel.
0: But the path forward seems a little clearer,
1: and I've gotten better at it.
0: Okay.
1: So that's the other part of your question: as you write more novels, does it become easier? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Easier. I've become a better author, I believe.
0: Yeah, good.
1: I really like my 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 last Zachary Blake novel. It's a little departure for me. It's just a who done it, uh-huh. as opposed to a social justice ripped from the headlines kind of thing. But it's uh, it's won three awards, uh, great in, in five months. Uh, people like it, and I'm very proud of it. It's called "You Have the Right to Remain Silent."
0: Cool. Now, other than the first book that was a passion project, is there another book, or is that the book that is kind of your your favorite of them? Or are they like your children you just don't want to say out loud? There's a favorite.
1: <laughs> that's like that's like asking me to. You have you have four children behind you. I see.
0: Yeah, I do. Uh,
1: which is your favorite child?
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well Mark your website is markmbello.com, correct? Correct. And if people want to find out more about your books, they can find you on Amazon or pretty much anywhere.
1: Uh, any online bookseller. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm a self-published author so uh, we don't you don't find self-published authors unless they really hit the big time uh in in bookstores, but I'm in every online, uh, bookseller, Barnes and Noble, Apple, Kobo. Um, what else is there?
0: Yeah. Great. Um, well, I,
1: I, bookshop.org is a, is a, uh, is an online, uh, bookseller that does good things with the money. They're nonprofit, and they do good things with the money that they, uh, take in. I'm on on bookshop.org also.
0: Okay, great. I've never heard of them. That's great. Well, Mark, thanks so much about for uh, sharing your stories and uh, for just representing what is the potential of good in the world when um, there is so much going on that it could be easy to focus on focus on what what is all going wrong.
1: Well, you know it's it's interesting. I, I I presume you want to wrap up, but but the. The issue of wrongdoing. My book is not just. My books are not just to highlight the um, occurrences of right. wrongdoing. Right. They're to offer solutions in the civil and criminal justice systems, practical, logical, uh, legal solutions to these problems, uh, both individually and to communities, uh, and maybe they will respond to these incidents in a little different way.
0: Absolutely. Especially,
1: uh, uh, for instance, in the policing uh, of uh, minorities, uh, change is happening as a result of community awareness of these incidents and the frequency of, of them and severity of them. When you look at right. the George Floyd case... Uh, I don't I can't see a George Floyd case happening again, although we did see recently uh, three cops caught on camera beating the crap out of uh, out of a citizen. Yeah, no. I, don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to stop, per se, but I don't think it's going to be as um, severe pronounced uh, right. uh Unbelievable.
0: And maybe maybe just maybe the accountability will be a little bit. um, The the threshold of accountability will be higher.
1: Well, it's 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 training and education and finding people that are more suited for doing the job of policing. Uh, No one's saying being a cop is an easy job. No, it's a very difficult job. And you put your life on the line every day and there's a lot of stress. I talked earlier about the stress of being a lawyer. But this is this is much worse.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, um, I'm not facing criminals uh, with guns as they're right. uh, ha- having said that there's a there's a certain mentality, uh, a certain patience, uh, a certain tolerance level that I think is necessary. And that's and that's an education and training issue.
0: Yeah. And
1: one one of the things in, in, in Betrayal in Black, my fourth novel. Um, One of the things offered in there is a practical training and education solution at the end of the book that I think uh, could be um, a model for these kinds of uh, solutions.
0: Oh, that's cool. That's great. That's great. Well, Mark, um thank you so much for your time and um I will point people towards your website and and towards your books and I'm going to going to read them cuz I, I
1: will love and I will love you dearly for it. <laughs> thank <laughs> you right. very much. Well, Thanks hey, you,
0: ha- you have a great day.
1: You too. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode,
0: we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRiley Author, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.